Domination. Hello and welcome to the What the Flick podcast. Yes, we are all zombies here in Zombie Nation, but we're Christmas zombies. We're singing Christmas zombies, which makes us jingle brains, jingle brains. Wouldn't the cranberries have been more seasonally appropriate? No, I, I cannot even begin to get that song in my head. So okay. don't mm. don't even begin to put it in there. So okay. thank you very much. Um, my, no, 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 no. My name is Christy Lemire. <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're at my dining room table. Who else is here today? I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And I am Matt Atchity. And our special guest star, who is not going to speak, but is going to just enliven us with his presence, is Dave White. Dave is here. Silently. It's kind of like a What the Flick linoleum knife crossover episode. Kind of. In that they all are. But, you know, <laughs> true, we are both here now. But now it is doubly so. Anyway, we're happy to see you, Dave. Um, we have a ton of movies to get to you guys between new releases and things on Netflix and the stuff that we're playing catch up with. And awards runs. Award stuff, yes. Three Christmas movies this week. Because yeah. it's that season. It is a magical right. time of year. Um, Do we have good things on our Christmas list? Like movie-wise or, or, just or for real? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm harder to buy for as I get older. I'm sure Dave really? can tell you. Yeah, I've, I've, I've become that person. It's like, I'm listening to things. I want experiences, you know, like I and, want. And plaid shirts. Uh, and plaid shirts also, always. But, you know, like like I would rather get like theater tickets or, you know, a spa day or something than okay. a thing. But that's me. I don't know. You? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I got a theremin last year, but I think I'm going to sell it. Oh. Yeah. Do you actually know how to play the theremin? I never touch it. That's the problem. As much <laughs> Is as this a metaphor? No. Do you actually have a theremin? I, no, that you... I don't. That was, I was waiting <laughs> he, for knows how to play, he knows how to play theremin as much as anyone knows how right. to play the theremin, I think. No. You can be good at that. No. That was... Uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to ask for for Christmas. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe something tropical themed, perhaps. Oh. Shocking. Shocking. Right. So. That's a zig and not a exactly. zag. <laughs> I need shoes. All right. My, my feet are a size six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like my heart. Just putting that out into the universe. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Anna and the Apocalypse because it's got a lot going on that is relevant to our interests. It is a Scottish romantic comedy zombie musical that takes place at Christmas. Alonzo. It, it is all of those things. <laughs> yeah. It is... Uh, it, Interesting kind of story behind uh, the movie. It was originally a, uh, a short film called Zombie Christmas, and uh, the filmmaker was a guy named Ryan McHenry. Um, he was sort of web famous for a series of viral videos he did called uh, Ryan Gosling Won't Eat His Cereal. Um, oh, I don't but, know that. Yeah, but then he, uh, McHenry died of bone cancer very young, like in his late 20s. In fact, Ryan Gosling, after he died, Ryan Gosling made a tribute video in which he ate cereal. Oh. Um, but he, his dream was to turn Zombie Christmas into a feature. Uh, he, you know, he wanted to do sort of a, a high school musical with zombies. And his friends kind of rallied together and made it happen. Uh, and so this is the result. And it is... I think a really charming film. It's a Scottish movie, and yeah, it's basically about a group of high schoolers. Uh, Christmas is about to happen. They're putting on the big talent show. Uh, oh, but lo and behold, there's a zombie outbreak. And so we get songs, and we get um, stabbings, and, and we get, um, you know, like really terrifying snowmen and Santa Clauses. It's fun. It's, it's kind of a messy movie, and I don't just mean because of the amount of blood that exists here, but it's um, it's not perfect. Like, the musical numbers aren't totally polished, and I yeah. like that about it. I like the kind of rough-hewn 
element of it because it truly does make you feel like they have legitimately just burst into song in the mm. midst of all this mayhem. It's not totally glossy. It's, it's not. Like, it's uh, not Mary Poppins Returns, for no, example, no. which is like perfection and it's glossy eye candy. It, it, you know, I think you have to bring the same kind of tolerance you have for a low budget horror movie where you know, like, okay, it's going to be four characters in one set, and you know, we're just going to their creativity is going to bring us through this thing. You have to sort of bring that same level of like, okay, there's a, this is a, this is that, but a musical. And so to do a musical on a low budget is a real technical challenge and a real aesthetic challenge. And I think that they make it work. And yeah, they, they do sort of make it, they make those numbers feel ingrained and, and organic. And so that kind of covers up for the fact that there's maybe only one number where there's more than say five people dancing at a time. The one in the cafeteria. Yes. Holly, Hollywood <laughs> ending. One of, one of several very catchy songs in this movie. The songs are very catchy. This movie also reminded me quite a bit of sing street. Like it's not Ooh. quite on the level of like completely overwhelming joy sure. that Sing Street is, but then very few movies are, very right. few like high school musicals are. Um, but there's the same kind of like scrappy um, likability and sort of an oddball nature to the characters. Like they're not they're not all your typical high school figures that you see in a high school movie. Yeah. I like yeah. that about I, it. And the, yeah, there's a, there's a charm to this and, and it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea, you know, for, for, I think if you're going into this wanting it to be like a hardcore zombie movie, it's not enough of that. It's the, bloody though. It, it is, it is gory. It's not particularly scary necessarily, but there is a mood of dread. I do. I did admire the fact that like a good zombie movie, not every character you like makes it to the finish line mm. and maybe even some characters you don't like do yeah. um you know so I, I think that it does at least sort of respect the genre in, in that respect um but yeah it's just it, it it's a it's a fun it's almost like somebody picked three genres out of a hat and had to figure out how to make it work as a movie and i think this works as well as any zombie christmas musical could work it's like six genres actually all at once there's a lot going on the venn diagram is like everything true teenage and, <laughs> and scottish and musical anyway it's totally charming i don't know where all it's opening this week maybe just in limited release it might be new york la but i think it is branching out further uh as we get closer to christmas uh this is an orion release oh yes mm, our old friends at orion they're back, they're back. <laughs> it's exciting yes um so i liked it quite a bit my number is a 7.8 yeah i'm a fan i said eight and a half um you know i i think it, at this point it's hard f to show me something in a, in a christmas movie that i haven't seen before this qualifies this legitimately is a thing you have not seen before Definitely. That's true. Okay, so our number is 8.2. It's at 84% on the tomato meter. Um, yeah, I like Ella Hunt, who is Anna, is quite likable. Yeah, and, and I like uh, Malcolm Cumming as her best friend as well. Yes. Very charming. There's some surprises as to what is going on with them or not going on with them. So, yeah, 8.2 is our number, Anna and the Apocalypse. Um, let us move on to a movie that... Okay, I've only seen this one. Only I have seen it, but let's just do it anyway. Sure. I don't know how it is that you guys managed to miss this, but you did. Uh, Mowgli. Well, there was one screening. There was one screening on Wednesday, and I couldn't see anything it was, Wednesday. I was at home watching stuff Wednesday night. I couldn't make it out. Um, yeah, and I, I was Skyping into the Deck the Hallmark podcast, oh. which was a lot of fun. You can hear That just dropped today, so you can hear that episode. Oh, plug, plug. <laughs> Good for you. Now, so Mowgli... Legend of the Jungle, what, yeah, the only screening of it was the premiere. It was at the Arc Light. Also at the Arc Light that night was 
the only screening of The Possession of Hannah Grace, mm-hmm. which we will talk about also today, which I went and paid good money for last oh, night. Bless at, your heart. At the <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's for RogerEbert.com. So ah. someone in theory is going to reimburse me for my $17 Ooh. ticket at the Grove. But also that night they had a screening of All is True, this Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare movie. Mm-hmm. And they had this big collider Avengers Infinity War event at the Dome. It was a busy night hmm. at the Airclay, but the big premiere was um, Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. And this is a strange hybrid. It's it's actually Andy Serkis's first film as director. He started working on this like several years ago um, before John Favreau's The Jungle Book. And, and, then, be- and before Andy Serkis's Breathe. Right, Breathe came out last year, I want to say. Was it this year? Last year. Okay, uh, and uh, that was a romance with Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy. Right. So this is Andy Serkis's take on The Jungle Book, but really more from the perspective of Mowgli's journey and his feeling of being torn between two different worlds. Um, the young man who plays him is Rohan Chand, who was the little boy in Bad Words, the Jason Bateman spelling bee dark comedy. And um, it's performance capture. It's pretty much 100% a, a performance capture film. There are human characters played by human beings that we see, <laughs> um, Matthew Reese and Frida Pinto. But it takes place, it goes back to India. So it's like the it's like the Favreau version, and the human is a human, but all the animals are are humans covered in ping pong balls. Yes, but um, but yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> so well, and it's it, you know the I haven't seen the movie, but I know that having read the Kipling works, right? right the later Mowgli stories do cover his kind of trouble fitting into Indian society, but like the and, Jason Scott Lee movie, yeah. This is, yeah, this is more about that. And it, yeah, it does, it is more about like feeling other, feeling alienated and having an identity crisis. And it also has some modern day kind of thematic relevance in terms of people being shunned for their ethnicity or feeling different or whatever. So um, this is this incredible cast. It's Christian Bale as the Panther, who is his protector. Bagheera. Bagheera, yes. And, uh, Kate Blanchett is Ka, mm. and Benedict Cumberbatch is um, Shere Khan, and it's it's a really great great cast. And wait, some wait, of them, I, hang on, yeah. I, I have to point out that Cumberbatch has now played Khan and, and Khan. Shere Khan. Yes, <laughs> and now he can play Shere. <laughs> <laughs> what can't he do? <laughs> and 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 Circus is Baloo, right? Circus is Baloo, but it's, it was, I was telling Matt before you got here, it's a very different kind of Baloo. He is not like happy-go-lucky singing Baloo. Mm. He is more like drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket Baloo. Oh, okay. It's intense. It's PG-13, and it's pretty violent. And so one of the criticisms I've seen of this film is that the question is, who is it for, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's really too intense and too violent for very young kids for whom, like, the Favreau Jungle Book would have been. I mean, welcome to the jungle. Yes. And, it's, and so I think people are going into it thinking, oh, it's the Jungle Book. I've seen it. This is a very different kind of Jungle Book. Gotcha. Um, I took Nicholas, and he's nine, and he's seen a lot of movies, so he wasn't too freaked out by this. But I think if you do have young kids, just think twice because – it's bloody. I mean, Mowgli is in, in peril quite frequently. Um, at one point, Shere Khan like has him held captive and like scratches like a big, deep gash down his arm. You know, mm. it's, he's he's, just, he's in constant serious peril. Um, but he's trying to prove himself and be a part of the pack. And um, 
he can't because he's not a wolf. He can't run with the wolves because he's not a wolf. And so, uh, but, and yet he also has difficulty when he tries to go hang out with the humans, the hunters, the colonialists there, you know, he's not really a part of their world either. So um, Andy Serkis began working on this a while ago and then the John Favreau version came along. And so Warner Brothers put Serkis's film on the back burner to allow the Disney version to go ahead. And this past summer, Warner Brothers passed it off to Netflix. Right. So Mowgli is getting like a one-week theatrical run prior to its premiere on Netflix on December 7th. I saw it in the 3D. Some of the 3D is quite effective. Mm-hmm. That will not translate, of course, into Netflix. There's a bit of an Uncanny Valley thing going on here with some of the creatures. Like mm. the panther, the tiger, the python, they all look... Is that what Ka is? Yeah. She's a big-ass snake. Um, they all... You know, you can see the humanity of the actor playing them in the eyes behind the creature. And, and that's very true of Baloo as well because mm. you know, this is, of course, circus's bread and butter. Sure. Um, the wolves have... That kind of jerky look of like mm. the wolves in Twilight, oh. like the talking wolves in Twilight. There's a bit of this, right. a bit of its off. There's a little kind of happy-go-lucky boy wolf, who an albino wolf, who is actually voiced by Circus's son mm-hmm. Louis, who is like his best friend, and he's different, and he's also ostracized, um, and he looks a little off too. So I'm, I'm a little mixed on this visually. I appreciate that they're trying to do something different with it here. I moderated a Q&A with Circus and with Rohan Chand and the film's composer, Nitin Sani, last night at the WGA. And that was really cool. You know, this, is his, this really is his first film he directed. And he did an enormous, ambitious, giant performance capture film. He had learned quite a bit working with Peter Jackson on The Hobbit. Of course, he is Gollum and or Smeagol. Right, and he was he was second unit directing He lot, did a lot. He, and he, lear- he learned a lot from that process. So he, he kind of knew what he was doing in that regard from that. Um, I really, I love the ambition of it. I love he's trying to do something diff- with, different with it. I'm not sure it always works visually, but if you want kind of a more intense take on this film, on the story rather, that's a little more in line with Roger Kipling's original intentions and that's what this is. And it's going to be on Netflix starting next week. So I'm saying, I'll say 5.8. Okay. <laughs> I mean, is it, you, so you, you said before, like you weren't sure who this was for because it was too too intense and too bloody for kids. Is it too sort of juvenile for adults or... Maybe, maybe okay. at times, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. But from a storytelling perspective, I think it works, and I, I appreciate its its focus in being as intense as it wants to be, and not necessarily catering. Anyway, it's okay. it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay, you <laughs> um, guys, it's pretty good. It's pretty pretty good. So my numbers are five point four. It's at forty eight percent on the tomato meter, and mm. I suspect that's a lot of like two star reviews. It's a lot of like pretty pretty good mixed to reviews. negative <laughs> yes um also while i'm here i'm going to tell you really really quickly about the possession of hannah grace oh i wish you would you guys oh, please do. you guys both happen to miss it i'm really thrilled I wouldn't for say you I was both <laughs> i'm thrilled for you both for missing it so um this is a movie about an exorcist i'm sorry an exorcism rather gone wrong it actually begins with the exorcism the point at which most 
demonic possession films would end, mm-hmm. this is the beginning. Okay. It is a, a teenager named Hannah Grace, and we see her at the beginning of the film tied to a bed. A standard issue exorcism imagery here. Right. You've got, it's like a dark and eerie room, and you've got priests hovering over her and praying for her and like splashing her with holy water. And she's writhing and contorting and saying awful, vile things. And um, she just like uses her telepathic evil abilities to just like destroy the priest to like just crack them and kill them um the dad is like screw it i'm taking control of the situation takes a pillow puts it over her face and kills her so he kills his daughter to get the evil out of her three months later she shows up at the morgue Three months later. Yeah. Three months later. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, they explain why. But three months later, she shows up at the morgue at a hospital in Boston. Go on like a goodbye tour? Yeah. Like. <laughs> How can we miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> um, so she shows up at the ho- hospital in Boston where it just happens to be the first night on the job of this former cop played by Shay Mitchell of Pretty Little Liars. If you guys have ever seen that show. Nope. Neither no. have I. Um, but she's on that show. And uh, it's her first night on the job. She um, is battling some demons and some substance abuse issues. And she's trying to get a clean start. And she's going to be battling some demons. Right. There you go. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> they're inside and they're outside. Oh, they're everywhere. The evil was in you all along. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so she wants a clean start by working the overnight shift at the morgue. Oh, brother. <laughs> so, um, hand- nothing says a fresh start. Yeah. It was but. that or moved to New Orleans and shuck a thousand oysters like yes. Bradley Cooper and right. Burns. She just didn't want to see, she didn't want to see people anymore. So she, she, uh, she wants to see dead people instead. Mm. And so, um, Hannah Grace comes it in better and, better. and mm-hmm. uh, and Hannah Grace won't stay put in her little drawer because she's not actually dead. Yeah. And so it's sort of an interesting premise. Like, so slowly, Don't try to put me in a box. Slowly but surely, <laughs> this body comes back to life and like wreaks havoc on the hospital. The problem is you can't see shit in this movie. So it's shot. It's, is it's, that a problem? No, no, no. <laughs> it is. If you want to know what's happening, I mean, I kind of I needed to know to Maybe write about it. Maybe this was the radio right? play version. Right? <laughs> So it's really hard to see. So it's it's the exteriors of it are the brutalist building that is Boston City Hall. If you have seen The Departed, mm-hmm. if you have seen any, well, you guys haven't, but what, I, I believe it's The Departed. The Departed. Whenever the Red Sox win the World Series and they have, or the Patriots, and they have like a big celebration, it's outside right. of of government center. That's government, the building they try to burn down. Government Senate. So um, it's like this brutalist monstrosity in the middle of like Faneuil Hall and all the historic stuff. That is the exterior of this hospital. But it's super dark inside too, even in the middle of the night. Like hospitals are well-lighted places. Generally speaking, yes. Even in the middle of the night, right? Mm. You cannot see anything in this place. And so like the lobby, the hallways, the women's bathroom, and especially the morgue are all very, very dark. And so, but really, I, why would we waste lighting on the morgue? Yeah, I mean, come on. Well, actually, they don't need to see. They do actually do one kind of cool thing with lighting in the morgue, and that is that it's all um, operated on motion sensor. So the room is dark until you walk into it, and then there's like a click, click, click. And then, like an ominous kind of buzz of the mm, overhead oh, lights, okay. but the overhead lights, because one of them is out, the overhead lights happen to form like a giant cross mm. over the morgue. 
in case we were wondering what this movie can, is about. Can, can we agree that like all <laughs> demonic possession movies are like Catholic propaganda because they make priests into superheroes? These like, priests, no are one, not. no one can save us but the Archbishop. You know? These priests are not superheroes. They get snapped in half by this bony little teenage girl. No, so I think because yeah. like you know Buddhist priests would just kick everyone's ass, right? There you like go. the kung fu priests, yeah. Shaolin right? Exactly, right? Anyway, so, the point is that Hannah Grace wreaks havoc in the hospital. And okay. this, this woman has to, like, face her fears, her, her demons, her demons. Oh, and, Grace. and her lack of grace. Yes. But there's, like, inconsistency. Oh, you caught that. Yes. There's inconsistency as far as, like, the rules. Because sometimes she kind of, like, does that crack, crack, crack crab walk or she will like skitter up a wall sometimes she walks upright sometimes she just leaps forward she can control cell phone signals and power lines and she can just move entire ambulances with a tiny shove she's a hyphenate <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's not very good and uh, and then it ends it's barely 85 minutes and then it just kind of ends mm. so my number is a two okay i think mm. the, the premise of if you could see more it'd be lower Maybe. Maybe it looks like crap. And I will now never think of this movie again. Nor should you. Um, It's at 22% on the tomato meter. That's what I just wrote about before you boys got here. All right. All right. So let's do a happy movie. Mirai is a happy little movie. You want to describe it for us? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Mirai is the story of, well, it's really a story of a young boy named, uh, what was it? Kun was his name, I believe. Um, Kun. Kun. Uh, he's, I don't know, maybe three, maybe four years old. Uh, his mom comes back. He's four. He's four. Uh, <laughs> his mom comes, his parents come back from the hospital with his new baby sister, and he realizes, oh, they're paying more attention to the baby than me. And uh, he has a few tantrums and uh, pretty much melts down, and, you know, it's shocking for him. And then he starts to kind of. Imagine uh, different things in his life um, and how that relates to him. And it ends up kind of these figures from his life, either from the past or the future, and kind of affect his journey. And it's this uh, animated film, uh, one of the, it's like the 10th most popular, uh, biggest box office animated film in Japan, I think, of all time. Uh, and it's this sweet, uh, charming little movie. I, I found myself. Uh, really kind of warming up to it. Um, John Cho is the voice of uh, Kuhn and Mirai's uh, father, and Rebecca Hall is the voice of their mother um, in the English-dubbed uh, version. Um, and it's sweet and fun, uh, and I, I kind of like this. I did too, yeah. Mamoru Hosada is the director, and it's a, it's a G-Kids movie. And uh, so it has the look of, you know, the, the Studio Ghibli movies that you love. Right. Yeah, I like the each... Each adventure in the garden, the, the garden that comes to life and manifests all his inner anxieties and jealousies and, and the characters that come forth in the garden, it, it's really wondrous and totally different each time, yeah. right? Whether, like, it's underwater at some point and, like, little fish are swimming by or I like, I like the uh, human incarnation of the dog, Right. That was really funny. The dog is hilarious. Yeah, the dog is really the prince as he introduced himself. That's really fun. Uh, The interaction with, uh, you know, the motorcycle, and that was a good, you know, that was a really interesting piece. Yes, and Um, and, and he's hunky. The the person who we see in the motorcycle is very very hunky. hunky. Uh, And that's (laughs) influenced by by Daniel Day Kim. Daniel Day Kim. Appropriately enough. Yeah. uh, There's, you know, the, we, 
you know, Kun is visited by his uh, a teenage version of his sister. Uh, he's visited by uh, a past four-year-old version of his mother. Uh, and, you know, you see, you know, it becomes a little bit of a almost kind of fantasy story in that Kun learns things that, that presumably no one told him. Um, and so you almost wonder, like, are these spirits kind of helping him grow? And it's, it's this really sweet movie because you do see him kind of grow by the end of the film. I, I like this a lot. And it, it, it's not pandering. It's, you know, it's very kind of sweet. It's very understanding about uh, especially what siblings go through as they have other siblings. Um, I don't you, know this. I, well, You and Alonzo know this. I don't know, know this. I, I, my... My younger brother is only like 14 months away from him, so I don't actually remember not having a brother. Uh, and there's a point at which the young version of uh, Kun's mother says, oh, yeah, my brother's only a year behind me. It's like having a twin, and, I, and absolutely it is. Um, but if you are older, if you're you know four or five years old and a new baby comes along, like at that point you're old enough to, real, to kind of perceive the lack of attention that's now coming your way as a child. Um, that's, I think, much more traumatic. And this movie catches that and, and catches kind of the conflict between Kuhn wanting to be a good brother and, and be a part of the family and yet understand that he's, you know, or accept that there's, you know, there's, maybe it's that there's enough attention to go around, but he's not the center of it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, he, and you see him act out. I mean, there's moments in this movie where that kid is a brat. But... You know where he's coming but you from. Know where he's that, coming that's from. how he knows how to express right. it. He's only like four or five years old, so right. And you know, the movie will have fun with the dad trying to keep things together, but it doesn't go for the easy laughs. You know, it's it's there's a bit of like bickering between the parents about how they're keeping things together versus how they acted when when young Coon came along as a baby, and then you get a glimpse of what. Uh, the mother's life was like with her mother. Uh, and it's, it's pretty grounded. It doesn't, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of animated movies would go for the easy laughs and the easy jokes. And this movie's kind of honest about it. Um, I appreciate to address something that I don't think a lot of kids movies do, or that even a lot of kids even consider until they're much older. And that is the fact that their parents were people before they came along and their parents had entire lives before they came along. And so the idea of being able to meet his own mother when she was his age and see a totally different side of her and see that she was a troublemaker and see the the seeds for the kind of mother that she would become because she, as a mom, says to Kuhn the same things her own mother said to her when she was a little girl. And And when you hear that, it's chilling. Totally. And you realize, oh, God, we all become our parents. Like, I say things to my kid my mom said to me. And and you think about that until you are – a lot older, I think, the idea, because you're such a little narcissist when you're a child for so long, it doesn't occur to you that anybody had any kind of life prior to you. Right. And so the idea that um, he learns that is kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, it's beautiful and it's sad. There's also a, a slightly scary part um, down in a train station. Right, right, I, right. And it, it does a good job of kind of like showing, you know, capturing the lo- the feeling of being lost. Yeah, right? it's scary. And, and it's and it's you know all of the stuff that adults are trying to ask you and, and that you don't have the information of. Yeah, no, right? it's, it's it's the yeah, what happens to him at the train station is is, is quite chilling and uh, 
and also kind of illuminating because it makes him realize what actually is important that right. he hadn't considered previously in his little bubble of life. So, yeah, I liked it a lot. I think if you're considering showing it to kids, there is some stuff there toward that third act that it, it gets a little bit darker and um, maybe it's not really for very young viewers, although it's quite colorful and lively and it looks like it would be for kids and it is from G Kids, from Studio Ghibli. Um, it's got some darker stuff like a lot of right. anime does. So, yeah, I thought it was quite lovely. I'm saying 7.8. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty close to where you are, uh, 7.5. Okay, so our number to 7.7. It is at 93%. On the tomato meter. John Cho is everywhere. And he is in this too. Um, let's do a movie that all three of us have seen. Woo. Not a lot for us to have. There's two, two films this week that all three of us have seen. All right. This is one of them. It's called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Because we could not allow a Coen Brothers movie to come and go without talking about it. Thank I think you. we'd be remiss. Exactly. As film critics and as a podcast. It would be are. malpractice on yes. that part. So, um, Matt, will you please describe the latest from the Coen Brothers? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, this is another Netflix release. Uh, this originally was slated to be a series uh, based on some writings, some, some short writings that the uh, Coen brothers had done, and then it kind of got glued together in a film, into a feature film. It's a long one. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily works completely as a feature film. It's, it's this anthology of six stories, uh, and they do definitely feel like TV episodes in places. Um, none of them are related at all, uh, and you've got this great cast in it, and it comes across almost, as you watch it, it's almost like a greatest hits of what the Coen brothers are capable of doing. Like either really silly stuff, really quiet, kind of just interesting, adventurous stories. Um, there's one story in here that I found to be heartbreaking. Um, Can you say who stars in that one? Um, I can't. Uh, Without giving it away? Zoe Kazan? Yeah, the Zoe yes. Kazan one. Oh, my God. That was just tragic. Devastating. <laughs> Absolutely devastating. Um, That's my favorite one, I think. Yeah, that one and my... Yeah, so there's these six vignettes um, or these six, you know, short films um, of varying degrees of quality. I, I would say probably that very last one on the stagecoach is probably the weakest one. I think I the think, James Franco bank, bank oh, robbing one yeah, is the weakest that one. That one's... I mean, it's it's the most sort of like... Set up, set up, punchline. But it's still right. for that on that level, it still works. <laughs> yeah, I, the the one with um, the prospector one was one of my favorites. With Tom Waits. I, yeah, I really liked that one. Uh, and the opening one is just bonkers, right? The 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 titular piece, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is Tim Blake Nelson as the singing cowboy, is just completely insane. Uh, that was my favorite one. And, I, I and loved it. it. And so in any anthology movie, when the first one is your favorite one, it's kind of like, um, you know, you're kind of chasing the dragon a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It, Which is not to say I didn't enjoy the other ones, but that was my well, favorite. Why well, was that your favorite, Alonzo? Because I just, I, I liked the idea behind it and how they, they took this notion and just like took it all the way. Right. <laughs> you know, to the very end. And I just thought it was so perfectly... Um, presented and performed and you know it, it just it, it, it puts a great sort of spin on this idea about 
what we think of when we think of westerns and how we sort of compartmentalize this kind of western and that kind of western and and, and they're they're actually sort of crossing the streams mm-hmm. in a way that nobody really has before and it's like oh that's what that would look like that's exactly right. what that would look like right take a Roy Rogers singing cowboy movie and, and have Sam Peckinpah direct it. right exactly <laughs> or put it in the world of like the Deadwood TV show or yeah. or the Kurt Russell Tombstone. Yeah. But in in the Cohen's milieu, it's very them too because oh, it's absolutely. like it's wild and also wildly violent all of a sudden. Like it's 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 funny and then like out of nowhere it's just intensely violent. Yeah. And so it's everything they right. do all at and once. And then back yeah. to being funny. Yeah. Right? And then they're laughing about the violence that like they're they're singing, you know, after they I mean Buster Scruggs will shoot someone and then sing about it, and there's a whole song, <laughs> and it's hilarious. And you, but it's also horrifying. And he's a very Coensy character in that he's just super loquacious, yes. right? The talkativeness of him, and the fact that it's not just that he's talking, but like the cadence and like the specificity of the language is so Coensy. Right. Like, you had to know the stranger from Lebowski. Like, like <laughs> this is a cowboy star who could say, "Would that it were so simple?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's fun. I, I liked them all to varying degrees. Ditto. The bank robbing one's my least favorite one. The Zoe Kazan one is just full of surprises. And, and I mean, they're all beautifully But that Zoe shot. Kazan one I found just hard. Just, Me too. Like, no, that it, one I was so sad. Well, that was so, so sad. If you like the Zoe Kazan one, you should go back and if you never saw Meek's Cutoff. Yes. Okay. You might check that one out. I like me's cut off. I, I like the stagecoach one too because I just I love the idea of like Saul Rubinek and Tyne Daly in a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> and and the tension of that, like as they all reveal themselves to each other on yes. this coach ride, like you don't know there's such tension because you don't yeah. know what's gonna happen at any moment oh, in time. And the traveling actor. Uh, yeah, he's chilling. Oh my god, that's eyes. such a great segment. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean I Yeah, that one see, like that one I think ran a little longer than it needed to. Like, I, you know, I, I, that one I felt like it, it was okay, but then, like, that may be my least favorite one. Um, you know, I, again, like, I want to go back to the, I mean, the great performances in that. And, sure. you know, kind of a really, this is one of the times you really, really get to see Liam Neeson show his age. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that life that he's living is pretty rough. Uh, but I really, I kept thinking about the Tom Waits one. The sure. the prospector and like, all right, I'm coming for you, Mister Pocket. Mister like, Pocket. I, there's just like, you know, the, the thing is, like, I've been, I, I thought this was fine, but I've been reading reviews where they really, you know, they love all of them. That they, they're all great, and and they talk about how they all sort of, you know, that uh, they culminate in telling this sort of complete story in different ways. And what? I didn't get that and maybe what? I'm dumb but I didn't I didn't walk away from this feeling like these were seven vignettes that all sort of added to to one end point to me they just sort no. of, it's, it's like an anthology film where it's right. like here's this story and this story and this story and they even talked about being inspired by those sort of 60s films where different directors would right. come together and each do a story about a certain theme or whatever um, but I you know I, I found it I found it uh, not particularly cohesive, although as cohesive as almost any anthology movie would be, which is that it's coming from a million different directions. Right. I mean, I would watch more episodes of this show. Me too. Right. Right. Because even the ones that are weak are still, I mean, it's, you know, the Coen brothers, I think, are in that group of directors that 
even if something doesn't quite work, it's still kind of interesting to see. Sure. Right? They've their got, misses are still Their misses are still, like, they've still got kind of a vision. They've still got a style that I think is worth watching. So I would watch more episodes of this, but I guess we're not going to get it. No, I love, too, that, so Bruno Delbanel shot this, who also shot Inside Lewin Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, each segment has a really distinct look about it. Definitely. Right? Yeah. So, like, the first one is really bright and shiny, and then the Liam Neeson one is really Overcast. dark. It's really dark, and um, there's, like, a quiet kind of tension about it and a, a, a tactile a a tactile nature to it like the, the, the snow and what they're wearing and where they're camping and and then um, there are some beautiful kind of very traditional western vistas to the Zoe Kazan section and then the one with the stagecoach, like the lighting just changes as their trip goes on and it gets darker and darker and they get right. closer to their destination. So um, I was blown away, blown away by the really distinct look of each one but then each one is totally gorgeous and has just spectacular individual moments. Like, they will play with genre, of course. It's what they do. But then they also honor some of the traditional looks of Westerns. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of homage going on here, <laughs> which is usually the case with the Coen brothers, where the, if you're enough of a film nerd, you're like, oh, this is, they're replicating that shot, or they're yeah. going after this, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, they're, you know, and, and, and yeah, I think they're sort of like paying homage to, like, again, the different kinds of Westerns, you know, here's a John Ford, and that's, that, that one's more Sergio Leone, or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's very much, I think, part of the agenda of what they're doing here. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's not necessarily a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you dip in and then you dip back out again. Right. But, uh, but it's, it's enjoyable and thought-provoking and moving while you are there. So sure. I am saying an eight. Uh, I said a seven. Okay. Yeah, eight and, and a half for me. Okay, so our number is a 7.8. It's at 92% on the tomato meter. And I saw it on Netflix. Did you guys actually see it in a the theater? Yes, I, I did. Yeah, okay. It's beautiful. In a I was going to say it must be stunning. Yes. Yeah. The widescreen it, it images. Is. But. I, uh, you, I saw it at the Venice Film Festival. Well, aren't you fancy? <laughs> well, so what was that? I mean, a place like Venice, I'm sure the Coens are adored. So what was the reaction like there to that? I mean, it was pretty enthusiastic. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's not one of those festivals. It's not like Cannes where people are like constantly having standing ovations or booing. <laughs> like, you know, you have to really. Sort of, <coughs> I'm sorry. You know, you have to. The, you know, it has to be something where like. I didn't go to the Suspiria press screening because I had seen it before I left. But I know that the Italians hate Luca Guadagnino. They do? Yes. Guadagnino. Nino. It's like gnocchi. Nino. Nino. I've been corrected <laughs> about this on, on who shot Wait, it. why do they hate him? Uh, you know, there's that thing sometimes where, where, where directors are popular around the world but hated at home. Oh. And and um, you know I think he, he used to be a film critic and uh, I don't I don't really know what the deal oh. is there but like I did go to the press screening years ago of a bigger splash <laughs> and when it ended all the Italian journalists started making this like I can't remember what the noise was like, but Ooh. something like yeah. that and I had to ask what is that good or bad <laughs> and they're like oh it's bad they don't like him oh no <laughs> well, we love you here in the United States Luca so keep um, making movies I. Have loved you and hopefully will love you again. Um, anyway, let's move on. Yeah, so Buster Scruggs, go check it out. I don't know how long it's on Netflix, I guess, for the rest of eternity. Um, also on Netflix, we're going to be in a little Netflix nook for the next few movies here. Um, mm-hmm. Starting with, we're also in Alonzo Duraldi's uh, wheelhouse here, The Christmas Chronicles. Yes. Tell us about this. And just for the next couple ones, uh, don't at me about how the numbers on this and how they relate to the Buster Scruggs number because we're talking about two different 
scales entirely. People are trying to do different things with their movies, yeah. and maybe they achieve with what they mean to do. I am ranking these as Netflix Christmas movies, <laughs> which is a thing in and of itself. So Christmas Chronicles stars um, Kurt Russell as the man in red, as Santa Claus. Uh, and uh, when I talked about this movie on Nathan Raven's podcast, he goes, he is the Santa who fucks. <laughs> And, and, yeah, we, and we do see Mrs. Claus eventually. We do eventually, yes. But like, but Kurt Russell is a, and I and I have never seen Big Trouble in Little China. But I'm told this oh. is this is the Jack Burton Santa. Uh, that's not far off. Yeah, there's kind of a trucker vibe going. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of swagger in this Santa. So there's uh, two kids and their father, who's a fireman, who's played by Oliver Hudson, who is Kurt Russell's stepson, um, has died the year before, and it's their first Christmas without him. And their mom is a nurse, played by Kimberly Williams Paisley, and she's working on Christmas and everybody's sad and the, the siblings aren't getting along she anymore. She was in Nashville and she was in the Father of the Bride movies. Yes. Yes, yes. And she, and she looks she, like she's hardly aged. She's been in her share of Hallmark Christmas right. movies oh, yeah. too. <laughs> this, this is her bread and butter these days. I, pretty much. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I saw her at the premiere. She looked dynamite. Anyway, so, um, so everybody's sad and things kind of suck and the younger sister in looking at old um, videos of the family uh, happens to see this like red sleeve and black glove appear for a second on tape and she's like Santa so she decides they're going to catch Santa in the act they set up a video camera they do a whole thing and lo and behold they do and they sneak onto the sleigh and in the process of frightening Santa he loses the bag of toys the reindeer and the hat which is apparently what allows him to sort of bend time and space uh, even though they started in Massachusetts, right. they wind up in Chicago. The sleigh gets trashed. This, yeah, so it's all like how to, how, it, it, a much saving Christmas ensues, and you know life lessons are learned. This is executive produced by Chris Columbus, and you know I think this is the kind of mad libbed. Um, Adventures in Babysitting and turned it into a Christmas movie because there's a lot of the same plot beats right. as far as like surviving downtown Chicago down to the blues number that does ensue at one point. Um, I had a good time with, with little Steven, right? With little Steven Van Zandt. Yeah. Exactly. I had a good time too. And yeah, and a lot of that has to do with just Kurt Russell showing up and being swaggering Santa, Kurt Russell. So it's that's, a lot of fun. So look, like I think this movie is a bit of a mess. Anytime that Kurt Russell is not on screen, the movie suffers. Like, it's... It, yeah, it, but he's almost it, never not well, on screen. that's the thing. Like, the scenes with <laughs> the kids... Once he shows up, he stays. Once he shows up, and he's... And he, like, I would absolutely watch another one of these with him as Santa. Like, that salty swagger he has yes. is amazing, and it's a take on Santa that you don't normally get, right? right. Because especially, like... You don't. You really don't get a virile Santa like this, right? Like True. you typically get these older. Like I think the closest saltiest version we've had in recent memory that I can. I mean, that I think in mainstream, lots of people, not the expert, has seen either one would be Ed Asner in Elf. Sure. And even then, he's relatively jolly, right? I mean, this like, one makes a big deal. He's like, oh no, no, I don't do the ho ho ho. Yeah, thing. like like Paul Giamatti and Fred Claus is kind of like. You, you sense that he's burdened by the job. Well, yeah, he's burdened know. by his brother, but this one, like, this one's salty, right? And yeah. he's, he goes around. This is blue-collar Santa. This is blue-collar Santa. You know, there's a, you know, when somebody, you know, he doesn't necessarily explain everything. You know, when it's like, well, what happens when there's not enough Christmas spirit? He's like, remember the Dark Ages? Bad things, man. Yeah, that, that, I, like, that, that's right out of Elf, that whole right. notion of, like, Christmas spirit is this quantifiable thing that's slipping well, away. But then there's consequences to it, right? right. And he's like, oh, no, no the world is screwed if we don't fix this. And I just liked his, 
I like that swagger. I like that he's a con man at times. Like there's that scene in you know in Nick's place, the bar, mm. where he's trying to like ask for a ride or something, and he's like, yes, he's you know sometimes he'll bring out toys for people, and he he knows everybody by name and he knows what they wanted, but he's also like he's got this con side to him where he's like like. Man, Santa is lying to this person. Yeah, he, 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 he's manipulating people because he, he knows everything about them. And right. He knows their deepest desires. And yeah, and, and, and that could have been creepy, but it, but Russell makes it work. And I think that's one of the things I really liked about this is Kurt Russell, he's got, he's you know, in spite of having that giant beard, like, he's got that twinkle in his eye. And what he, do you mean in spite of having that giant uh, beard, sir? I'm saying that in spite of the Kurt Russell who we normally see beardless. Oh, I see. That's what I'm talking about. It's not about like, beards in it's general. Not about the beards, it's, it's Kurt about Russell Kurt, specifically. Kurt Russell specifically. Um, I found myself really charmed by just him in this movie. And even though it's a mess, even though, like, you know almost everything that's going to happen, when, again, like, half the dialogue is really especially for the kids, is really awful. Uh, but, but the kids themselves aren't bad. The kids Darby themselves, Camp and Judah Hill. They and are very good. The two guys playing the cops were really funny. And the shorter one, who I think was in Game, Game Night, Night yes. was those guys and their reactions to Santa were hilarious. If there's one thing that I would, I would axe if, in any future Santa movies is the CG elves. Yeah, that didn't work. Yeah. They were super irritating. And at one point, like... Like, what are you doing with that chainsaw? Like it's, it, 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 yeah, they right. were creepy like, and they were trying to be sort of miniony or something. They're kind of like minions, but they're also kind of like gremlins because the minions are like wacky and hyper, but they're inept. Yeah. And gremlins have like a, an evil purpose, and so that they, the the You're elves right, are yeah. kind of like a darker kind of elf than we've seen they're before. They're gremlins. Yes. Um, no, I I agree with the adventures and babysitting analogy. It, it does have that kind of cheeky feel of like kids on an adventure and it's like maybe a little more grown up than they're used to doing anything it's a no i i had a good time i was surprised and yes kurt russell goes a long way towards selling this because it's a very meta santa movie but he's not winking and telling us like i'm in on the joke like he sells it he's he's dedicated he's committed to this role um i it it he complains about the portrayals of right He's not in the media. There's that, that scene where he throws his coat back and turns around. Does my butt look that big? Yeah, like, yeah. there are a couple, a couple of jokes that made me cringe, and that that was kind of one of them. And also the fake news line was kind of a cringy joke. Oh, I thought that was funny. I don't know. People laughed. Well, our, you know, let, let us never forget that fake news was actually originally an expression that was used to talk about like Fox Russian news. Russian stuff on Facebook, propaganda, and then Trump turned it around to make it right. basically anything that wasn't nice to him. Yes. But this felt like an attempt at being. Um, current and hip by tossing in a fake news joke it felt like a, a cheap gag um but yeah the kids were cute they, they were fine i just had nice energy with each other i thought and they learned life lessons come sure. on and, sure. they, and they weren't smarmy which kids in a christmas movie very often precocious smarmy disney-fied kids. right i just think a different actor trying to do this you would have ended up with something no. it's yeah. Uh, it, oh yeah this is his game this is his game and it's it's okay how can we make enough of a story to let kurt russell be this really kind of fun you know hip santa mm-hmm. right and something that i never would have expected to see out of a santa claus character totally works you know it, it's you know the similar to like what you would expect out of you know i mean he's not going to do this it's like 
Bruce Willis in his heyday, kind of like that <laughs> kind of swagger, right? right? And not that Kurt Russell never had that, but we are all we've also seen Kurt Russell be really dour in things like Tombstone sure. or Escape from New York, and this is this is kind of the charming lady killer. I mean, that's what it is. It's like you've got this like it's like the used cars, Kurt Russell. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like there's that there's this there's one particular scene where you know we're I mean we've seen this in the trailers where there's the musical number where you know it's that song where it's like oh yeah Santa not only has sex like he's looking at the like the backup singer and like how many of the side singers does he take home every Christmas? And like, what's he doing the rest of the year? Cause I bet he's up to no good. Mm. No, he's faithful to Mrs. Claus. What are you yes. talking about? Mm. Why would you even suggest that? Uh, You've gone too far. Uh, maybe she, she will not have that. No. So, um, yeah, it's cute. If are they, you saying that Santa can't, are you saying that Santa can't be on the naughty list? Cause there's nothing about the list no. that says you can't give presents. Santa is good all the time. So, um, I'm saying maybe six, they have an arrangement. Maybe, that's how, maybe, he, they maybe do. that's how he gets back on the nice list. Maybe they are sister the wives. They've been married for millennia. I'm sure they've worked out. They have an understanding. Just don't embarrass me. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about <laughs> no second dates? Uh, are we talking about Goldie and Kurt? Or are we talking um, about, <laughs> all right, I'm saying 6.8. I think if you, uh, if you have visitors coming over, you need to entertain them or have the kids occupy while you're wrapping gifts somewhere you could do worse this is cute i'm saying seven and a half uh, i part of part of what i admire about this is that netflix is trying to muscle into the hallmark game on this yeah they are but they are thankfully not making just sort of hallmark ish movies you know uh, dropping today is you know uh, the Chris a christmas prince the royal wedding which is super hallmarky like if you took the gay best friend out of it i think you pretty much could air it on hallmark um but this one is at least like let's what are other kinds of christmas movies we can be making so I admire that effort on their part. And, uh, I, yeah, I think that Kurt Russell, you know, makes it, makes it work far better than maybe it should. Yeah, I, I think that this is, as long as Kurt Russell's on screen, it's worth paying attention to. Okay. Uh, the rest of the movie, not so much. I give it a six and a half. Okay, so our number is a 6.9. It's at 66% on the tomato meter, but I think it's a little better than that. Also, while we are in Christmas territory... The Princess Switch, which I have to admit, I only watched because I was sitting in a chair at the nail salon getting a, a much-needed mani-pedi. Uh. So I, I could hear the volume of it, but I also read the closed captioning. But I do feel like I got a really good idea of what is happening here in this extremely high-concept um, body swap yeah. or life swap comedy. So Alonzo, please tell us. Okay. Okay, so yeah, so speaking of Netflix movies that could air on Hallmark, um, yeah, this this is a combination. I think Hallmark had better taste. Uh, Parent Trap slash Prince and the Pauper meets um, uh, woman who enters a baking competition movie <laughs> meets. Commoner who marries a, a royal uh, movie. These are all. King Ralph. Th these are all viable Hallmark genres, and they have. Mash them all into one movie. Who said, who was it that said that there's like a, a Netflix algorithm for writing scripts and this is the result of it? Is, is there is does that sort of thing exist? Like uh, you, well, that I, was that wasn't there. What did we just see that there was a bit? Was that in Christmas Chronicles where they he was like, here's my thing where he's just randomly 
spinning wheels to come up with something. Was that this one? What did we no. see this one? Anyway, but this feels like, like what are all the things that are popular? Yeah. yeah let's put them so, all together. Oh, no, and make one a Mary Poppins. So <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens is a baker in Chicago. She gets picked to enter an annual holiday baking competition in the fictional kingdom of, I don't even remember now. Monrovia. Monrovia. Thank you. Not <laughs> to be confused with Belgravia. Not to be confused. No, yeah, it is Belgravia. Oh, Belgravia. You're right. right. Monrovia is an actual city. It's, no. it's Belgravia, and sh- but the other Vanessa Hudgens is a princess from somewhere else. Montanero. Montanero. Montanero so yes. wait, so isn't Belgravia where Anne Hathaway is from in the Princess Diaries? Never saw it. I don't know. I'm going to look that up. Go ahead. But yeah, not, not to be confused with Aldovia from the Christmas Prince movies or Sansonaba from Christmas <laughs> at the Palace, which just right. aired on Hallmark Channel. Or Potsylvania. Exactly. Which so. is nestled between your Sylvania and Wrestlevania. <laughs> Throwback to the... Uh, Marx Brothers. Right? No, that's that's a that's a joke from the Boris and Natasha movie. Ah, there we go. Real fast, it's Genovia. I repeat, Genovia is where Princess Diaries takes place, ah, which is okay. near Genosha, which is where Magneto uh, <laughs> had all the mutants in X Men in his country that they had taken. Okay, over. so Continue. so so uh, Chicago baker Vanessa Hudgens goes. Oh my God, if we with, were still on YouTube, people would go bonkers <laughs> over that riff we just did. Goes with a, a coworker um, who loves her, but she's like. Yeah, we're Friends uh, and his adorable daughter to whatever uh, to, to Ruritania um, for this baking competition. That country's prince is about to get married to the Duchess of Montenero. Lady Margaret. Lady Margaret. <laughs> Lo and behold, she is also played by Vanessa Hudgens. But she is very publicity shy, so almost nobody knows what she looks like. Even though she's stunningly beautiful. Yes. Because right. she looks like Vanessa and Hudgens. And has high style and giant glasses. So when they bump into each other at the palace, they're like, oh, what? And then um, the uh, Lady Fluffenfold is like, look, I want to like live a little before I have to become this guy's wife and, you know, be stuck in this palace for the rest of my life. So let me... I need to go and get down before. Exactly. I'm going to get some strange. So let me let me be a baker for a couple of days and you come in and... Let me get and, baked. And, and be all princessy. And wouldn't you know it, the prince falls in love with the baker while... Uh, the princess. Baker friend falls in love with the duchess. And, yeah, you know exactly where this movie is going. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, it takes too long to get there. Okay, here's the thing. Y'all, y'all are being tough on this movie because you have not seen nearly as many stupid Hallmark movies about commoners falling in love with royals as, they, uh, as I have. Nobody has seen <laughs> no one, exactly. as many as you oh, have. Oh, please. There are entire podcasts devoted strictly to Hallmark, <laughs> so they, they got me beat on that one. But, but as far as Christmas movies. Uh, as, as, as these things go, like, Vanessa Hudgens is finding the laughs mm-hmm. and, like, knocking them out of the park compared to, like, look, once you've seen Lacey Chabert or uh, Danica McKellar, do this kind of movie like Vanessa Hudgens is next level no I look I, I don't the only thing that makes this at all watchable is Hudgens like she's she's trying her best but but the movie sandbags her at every turn and it's it's kind of devastating and not the least of which is that 
boy, they spared every expense. Oh well, on yes, this film. no. The, 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 like, look, these mythical kingdoms are always like a postage stamp backlot well, somewhere. But it was also like it was this great opportunity. I'm watching this at home with my wife and with Gabe. Oh no! And and it became this great opportunity to show Gabe like, okay, here's how you can tell a cheap movie. <laughs> right? Here's how you can tell they're never actually on location. Right? They do establishing shots, but you don't right. see any of the actors. Oh yeah, no. Right? Look, every Hallmark or, movie starts with New York, New York, right. New York, New York, Vancouver. Yeah, this one is more Bad like lot. countryside. <laughs> countryside countryside soundstage yeah. right like th- then there's you know we're laughing like oh look at the carolers and the cheap party city hats like this is janky in a lot of the ways that a lot of these movies are janky but it you know again i think yeah, hudgens you're right ma- makes it better than it should be also like this is believe it or not sexier than a hallmark movie would be hallmark would yeah. almost never give us the shirtless dude they would certainly never give us baker and prince playing twister you know like they, this movie had a spark to it that is missing from so many comparable films i'm probably being kinder to it than i should but again i've seen so many versions of this stupid movie right. and uh, this one is like by comparison Tons better. Okay. The I, hunky shirtless dude is Nick Sager. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. no one should let Nick Sager wear that hairstyle again. Oh, yeah. Do you know why? That's, that's what I told you at the screening the other day. <laughs> he looked all too much like C. Thomas Howell oh. in, oh. in Soul Man. Oh, yeah. That, that is bad. Yeah. No, it's like a right, bad home perm. Like, like oh, oh, no. that's It's completely taken. I, I kept waiting like... Are we going to find out he's not actually that dark? Like, that's, is, the, is there that's, a wig? Right. Like, I kept thinking, like, is there some other side plot that's similar to Soul Man happening in this? Like, it, it, and I know that that's a terrible thing for me to say, but that's how he should not wear that hair. That's how bad his hair was. So let me ask you this. Is, is your enjoyment of this legitimate, or is it like a so bad it's good kind of cheesy enjoyment? <sighs> I think maybe it's more of a Stockholm Syndrome where (laughs) I have seen so many rock-bottom rotten versions of this story that the fact that this one had, like, the tiniest amount of spark and life and wit to it makes it seem like a a masterpiece by comparison of so many of the other ones that I've seen. and again... Hudgens goes a long way to actually making this. Yeah, she's the Kurt Russell of this film. Right, where it works, you know, she saves it from being completely unwatchable. Like, it's, it's... it's not good. It's also um, particularly shameless of Netflix to have oh, her yes. stop and watch A Christmas Prince in this movie. Right. But so, isn't there a part in the, in the Christmas Chronicles where somebody's watching Stranger Things? Yes. Yes. <sighs> but then this shameless, movie, shameless. But the other shameless. thing is this movie does stuff where it's like it'll set stuff up and then never really like, like tie the, up the, the rivalry like, with the other chef. Yeah. Right. Like the rivalry. Oh, yeah. Her big sabotage of Vanessa Hudgens is she cuts the the. the, the, the electrical cord to her standing mixer and it's like and they they discovered this so late in the process i'm like you would have been using that standing mixer to cream your your butter and sugar like from the get-go like why is it we're, right. why are we an hour into this competition and suddenly now you're noticing it's not working you want consistency in your cheesy christmas movie <laughs> I, I appreciate that yes. yeah i don't want lumps of my cheese come on all right so purely from what i watched from the nail salon i'm giving it a 5.2 
You guys? Uh, I, I, I saw too much. I, I give it a four. <laughs> I'm giving it a seven because, again, you know, I'm not saying that it's as good as the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but I'm <laughs> saying that compared to the all the other Hallmark Ruritanian movies that I've ever seen, this one is leaps and bounds better. Right. This is not the best example, but not the worst example of the Belgravian film milieu. Yes. I'll tell you what, though. Alonzo, <laughs> the Belgravian new wave. Right. I'll tell you. You're not alone, Alonzo. It's at 100% on the tomato meter. Our, yes. our, our number is a 5.4 thanks to Matt so, not liking things. So here's the thing. Two, when I watched this, I think it was Tuesday night, Monday night, uh, as we're choosing between this or Christmas Chronicles, I'm mm-hmm. looking like, oh, what's the tomato meter, my wife says. And I was like, well, Christmas Chronicles is at 60-something and, and Princess uh, Switch is at 100. And my wife says, okay, we're going to watch that. And Gabe's like, well, how many reviews? <laughs> it's only, it can't be more than 10 reviews. This is how much it's I like trained It's like seven. Him. And I look up, and, and at the time, it was like, oh, six. He's like, see? <laughs> so, Our children are cynical. <laughs> and if, if you want more um, funny Vanessa Hudgens, uh, a movie that I love from a few years back that nobody saw, that I've, I'm constantly beating the drum for, oh. is Band Slam. Yeah. Oh, Band Slam is cute. Yeah. And, and they, she has this in her, and she has Spring Breakers in her. So yes. right. let, let us wow at the range of mm-hmm. Vanessa Hudgens post high school right, let's get her some good scripts okay um so last thing we're gonna do which you guys have seen which i really really want to see because you both loved it it sounds yes. like is bathtubs over broadway matt what's that about all right so bathtubs over broadway so i'm gonna preface this by saying you know one of the best things about being a critic and doing what we do is being able to turn people onto other movies right and getting the recommendation from a fellow critic can be really awesome now I will say I was only, like, half successful this week because you recommended Christy Princess Switch. You brought no, that I up. I didn't recommend it. I said people are talking about it on Twitter a lot. Anyway, I wouldn't have and, known about it except that you said right, something. Right. I have my finger on the pulse because people were live tweeting it and bitching about the dumb things in it. I'm like, ooh, we should talk about oh, this. Oh, I, I was live tweeting it, and I, got onto, I, I became part of a, a Twitter topic for the first time. Ooh, congrats. How'd ooh. that feel? On the other hand, <laughs> where this pays off is my good friend Alonzo Duraldi mentioned that this was so good, and I decided to go see it, and he was seeing it a second time. Yes. And halfway through the movie, I turned to him, and I said, thank you. Okay. This, because this movie is amazing. So this is the story of Steve Young, Steve Young who was head writer for years and years on uh, The Late Show with David Letterman, and he was responsible for, among other things, the Dave's record collection bits, where they'd play some terrible record. And as part of that, he stumbled across these records that were basically in musicals, soundtracks from these industrial musicals, like these live Broadway shows. Uh, these were these were elaborate song and dance extravaganzas that were designed to be presented at like conventions right. or sales meetings right. about the products, about the company, about the new products that were coming in right. to so get the salesmen be, all jazzed up. Right. That's so, so random. Be, so like it, so at Ford's annual sales meeting, you know, so Ford might have an annual sales convention with all of their sellers and all of their dealers in, say, you know, late 60s, early 70s, and they would put on a show, and then they would send people home with the record of the show, and it was, you know, get them excited to go out and sell these products. And where Steve Young comes in is he starts, he stumbles across these records, and he kind of starts collecting them without really realizing what he's getting into. And then as he, as he delves into it, he starts to understand in talking to some of the people because he doesn't have a musical theater background, but as he delves into it, he realizes there was this whole subculture, this whole hidden industry of 
these industrial musicals that happened. The heyday was between the 60s and, and like, early 80s, where these musicals were be, being put on. At one point, they reference how much one of the budgets was, and it was, like, six times of yeah. what, like, Camelot was like, yeah, like, put no, on No, for. no, my fair lady, like, yeah, the, like, right. the Chevrolet show that year, they spent $3 million on, and, like, they opened uh, my, my fair, fair lady, lady for, like, $450,000. Right. It's, it's bonkers. And, you know, one of the guys who... You know, they talked to the guy who wrote the music for uh, Fiddler on the Roof and yes. then somebody who had written music for Cabaret. But you had professional That's where they songwriters started. was they would work on these as well. And they and so he so it ends up being this journey where he finds these performers and songwriters. And it's this beautiful story, because in parallel, you've got this guy who and he, and he kind of leads the film off with this. Young had been writing. He talks about this. He, you know, you write comedy so long, you get to this point where, like, you can't laugh at anything anymore. You just can't, right? And it's... it's he's comedy damage. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's so, like, inured to it Like, anymore. the nerve endings are frayed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way he talks about it. That's exactly what he says. And he's got, like, and, no friends and no hobbies right. out of his family. And, and this pursuit of this thing right. like he introduced him to like he meets these performers he meets these composers and it completely changes his life it changes wow. his life and right around the time that letterman's run is winding down and i was blown away by this movie this is that rare like this is this is the type of movie that this is why i do what i do yeah. right absolutely like and and again thank you alonzo for <laughs> for putting this on my radar because this was a world that I had no idea about it. And it's not just the discovery of this world. It's the movie is so effective at taking you on that journey because you don't know where it's going. And you get to witness, you know, maybe not in real time, but you get you get brought along to the change that happens to Young. Yeah. And, and how, you know, and, and there's something he says at the end of the film that he talks about the way he looks at people on the street that is so poignant and so moving from a guy like that, and it's and it's just amazing. Yeah, because, like, I, I mean, you could have just made a movie about the fact that industrial musicals existed, and that in and of itself is fascinating. That's weird, right. yeah. Like, didn't right. know you about it. You could have made it real campy and, yeah, like, you know, point and, and laugh. It's so bizarre. But, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, not only are we seeing this guy sort of blossom as a human being and, like, reach out to other people and have interests and, and, and connect with the world in a way that he didn't before, but it's also, I think, very specifically about, you know, as I loved Letterman's show, but... He, he is sort of this kind of center point of a kind of of a certain brand of Gen X humor that is based on mockery and feeling superior and kind of smugly right, putting aside things. Right? Yeah, being cynical about a thing that, though, this is weird. This is dumb. Well, and and the thing is, and real quick to to kind of go in on that, like when you look, especially at the early Letterman and some of the crazier stuff he was doing on NBC, like so much of it was a reflection of what Letterman as a person was bored with in kind of the media space. Sure. Right. So that's why he would have stuff like, oh, we're going to drop stuff out the window. Oh, we're going to have interns. We're going to have the pages race the elevators because right. it, like, he had such contempt for everything else. Or just have Chris Elliott show up and just be weird. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I remember an early thing where he and Paul went to like Coney Island and like went on the rides. Like There was a Dante's Inferno haunted house. I was like, right. so, what did you like better, the ride or the book? Right, and, um, so, <laughs> and I bring that up because, because Young, Steve Young is, is kind of the guy, this writer is kind of the guy who fuels that and he's so like he's so deep in making that show happen for yeah. Letterman that you and again he says like he's so it's like he's got 
nerve damage. Like his nerve endings are yeah. burnt away. And this movie, you know, this journey for him brings them back. Yeah. And it's amazing. But, but I think it's also sort of about the idea of getting past irony and getting yeah. past cynicism. Being like, you know what? I This is not a guilty pleasure. This is a pleasure. Not this unlike a, your Hallmark movies. For instance, maybe. <laughs> this is a thing that I that I genuinely love that I'm getting something out of. You know, because there's even an early clip where like Letterman plays a song called My Insurance Man that's from one of these musicals. And they play like a 10 second snippet and, and Letterman goes, ugh, it turns out this is even more annoying than talking to my insurance insurance man you know uh but for steve young it's like no actually that that song is really great and there's a lot of these songs that are 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 catchy or fun or you know and again this is not somebody who really was immersed in musical theater but these shows are so bizarre and then and and yet you know they have a lot of you know songwriting juice to them and and you know the performers are are you know you could say oh they're selling out but they're giving it their all and they talk to people like Cheetah Rivera and Florence Henderson oh, wow. and Martin Short who were in these shows right. before they got famous. and I think what also gives it a little bit of street cred is that you see through as he's talking to these other collectors and and trading records cuz it's very much the same way that like those like really really obsessive jazz collectors are right yeah. and there's a there's a conversation at one point between him and his kind of protege and they're they're like oh that's this writer and oh it's that writer and and it's that like, white guy collecting it's, thing right <laughs> like he can hear a few bars of a song and like that sounds just like this and and it's you know those guys who are obsessive but yet he also ends up one of the other collectors of these types of records was Jello Biafra yes and and, and the, also the drummer for the Germs right Bumble. and so they talk to you know and you get a little bit of Biafra talking about this stuff who is again like pushing back on the irony and is is and of all people you kind of wouldn't have, i mean this is the guy who wrote you know holidays in cambodia right, right. And, and you wouldn't have expect be offered to kind of accept like yeah this is what people did and this was the art that they created and it's cool it, I, I would recommend that people go read richard brody's review in the new yorker because not only does he love this movie but he goes it, it kind of brings up this idea of like what is art and what do we decide is the art that needs to be maintained and remembered he goes because even though this was technically advertising like you could point to a lot of mainstream like cinema and literature or whatever and it has an agenda and it is trying right. to sell you something whether you think it is or not you know so just the fact that somebody paid for it and was just trying to like this is a song about our new right. tractors no, or whatever is, <laughs> doesn't automatically make it well, not a work of right. art. Right. I mean you know? this is just B2B advertising. It's not you know, business to business advertising. Right. It's not business to consumer. That's right. the only difference. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like, you know, we were never meant to see these musicals. You know, the 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 the, the, the albums that he's able to find all say like for internal use only, not oh, not for right. broadcast, right. because they were literally just made as souvenirs to send to the salesman to be like, oh, we had a great time in you know Baltimore last spring, and here's a record of you know the Go Fly a Kite, you know the GE musical or whatever. Well, know? it sounds like it does what so many really cool documentaries do, which is like expose you to an entire world you had no idea ever existed. Yes. So this sounds really appealing in that regard. Um, so what are your numbers? I give it a 9. I really uh, am high on this. Uh, I, I was blown away but I give it a 9.8. Wow. It's almost wow. perfect. Wow, wow, wow. So 9.4 is your number. It's at 100% on the tomato meter. So where can one see this? It is getting a one week awards run at the Monica in Los Angeles. I'm not sure where it's showing. It's in New York and then it's going to get a wider release in 2019. Okay, so keep an eye out for it to come near you. And yeah, when it does open 2019, we'll bring it up again, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so we had a wide variety of movies on this very long episode. Just to recap, Anna and the Apocalypse, we gave an 8.2. Mowgli, I said 5.4. The Possession of Hannah Grace, I said a 2. Mirai, Matt and I gave a 7.7. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, our number was a 7.8. 
The Christmas Chronicles, we gave a 6.9. The Princess Switch, despite Alonzo's love for it, we gave it a 5.4. And Matt and Alonzo really, really liked Bathtubs over Broadway and gave it a 9.4. Next week is also jam-packed. We have Mary Queen of Scots. Vox Lux, Ben is back. Maybe Ben will be here next week. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, Tyrell and Divide and Conquer, the Roger Ailes documentary, which oh, I think we should definitely talk about. It's a big week, and yet none of those films, I think, are opening in wide release next are week. Are they not? I don't think anything's uh, opening wide. Mary Queen of Scots, maybe. Maybe Ben is know. back because it's a Julia know. Roberts we'll movie. Uh, I think Ben is back might be. Anyway, we'll so um, thank you. Thank you for sticking around with us. And thanks to both you guys for being here. And thank you, Dave White, for just gracing us with your presence. He's <laughs> Come on, say something soda. for the kids, Dave White. He is here, I promise. Um, so any parting words? Um, no. Uh, oh, well, you know, it's the time of year where I remind people that I have a book called Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas, now available on Amazon as a book or as a Kindle. It's a holiday film guide with no Hallmark movies in it, I promise. It makes an excellent stocking stuffer. Thanks. All right. Uh, yeah, I, this is the time of year I have no book. <laughs> I've never had a book. Oh, uh, and Matt is correct. None of these open wide. <laughs> oh, okay. Exactly. But we're going to talk about them anyway. All right. Thanks, you guys, so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.